I'm coming, uh, but I want to kind of give you an update on where we are um, in our building plan, where we are in, in our next steps. I see a lot of you nodding because a lot of people have been asking about um, what's been going on. I had one of the lessons that I've learned so far in this, and some of you, is that things take longer than I expect them to take. And this summer, um, plans were in the hands of the, the architect for the um, construction plans, the detailed plans to get drawn up, and in our civil engineers to get some of the um, foundational work taken care of, that working with um, Swift Mud, the Southwest Water Management District, and um, FDOT, and, and some of those things to get some of the details ironed out. And we started hearing this summer that the, the plans would go into permitting any day. That's kind of become the reoccurring um, kind of joke for us, any day now. And, and so I was waiting for the plans to hit permitting to give you all an update. I thought that would be about August. It's November. But, but here's what I'm here to tell you. The plans are now in permitting. So the plans have gone to... The county. So that means it's now. Now, what you all are going to ask me is you're going to, so, so when's it going to start? Any day now. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, those of you that know more about this know that we have really no idea how long it'll take the county to turn that over, whether they'll make us do any modifications, um, you know. So I'm not going, I'm not even going to project anything for you. We'll keep you in the loop. We'll let you know the things. And I do want to say that one of the, the advocates for us, I was talking to Ron Forney yesterday, and he said that behind the scenes, our commissioner, um, Priscilla Trace uh, Wisnett, no, Priscilla Wisnett Trace, has done a lot um, of advocating for us. And I just want to let you know, and if you know Priscilla, we want to certainly thank her for that, um, as details and, and drainage facility or drainage plans and, and turn lanes and those kind of things have been just points of having to work out and iron out the details. So we'll let you know as we start to know one of the things that we will um, be doing probably early in the next year is we will have a groundbreaking. Um, we had wanted to wait until we kind of knew we were getting at least closer to the start of construction to do groundbreaking. So we'll plan some of those events. I want to thank you. Because you have been so faithful to our um, capital campaign, we have over a million dollars already in the building fund, just in, in cash assets. Yeah, thank you. Um, and that doesn't include, you know, about $350,000 in costs that we've already paid. So, um, so thank you for that and for your continued faithful support of our general budget. Because one of our, you know, anxieties was, and I, I talked to those of you who were part of this, the capital campaign, I said, please don't divert general giving into the capital campaign because the general giving is what allows us to continue to do the ministry and programming that, that God's called us to do. And you've been incredibly faithful to that. So thank you for that. Um, thank you. We're excited. We're just kind of, you know, we're, it's really just out of our hands at this point. We're just kind of having to wait until the, the proper um, authorities tell us that we're good to go. But we're getting everything as ready as we can and, uh, and so I'll try to do, uh, I will do better to kind of keep you in the loop as we move forward um, with this, as we have things to tell you. But we do have things to tell you. So it's in, it's in the county, so, um, you know, pray we get kind and um, 
busy people that just want to pass us along and get us going. So anyway, so so wanted to uh, to share that with you. As always, feel free, you know, to ask me questions very often. At, not right now, but um, after worship, a lot of times I may just have to to get with the people that know more than I do. Uh, I did not take church construction classes in seminary, so I'm learning a lot. But uh, but anyway, we wanted to share that with you. Now, let's, um, let's pivot a little bit this morning and let's continue in our sermon series. We are in week three of a series that's meant to challenge us with that question, are we all in? Are we all in? And so part of, part of understanding if we're in is, is understanding who God says that we are, the invitation and the, the words of, of truth that God speaks into our lives I hear you, Michael. I do. It's a, <laughs> hey, it's okay. It's, one, it's a beautiful sound. So, um, uh, but uh, he, uh, hey, he, he did good. He did good. So, um, I don't want to, but, um, but um, as, we, as we wrestle with being all in, that we, we talked about being invited. And we talked about God's invitation to us and what that means. And, and we talked about um, the, the fact that we, um, we're, we're in, invited and... Ooh, I'm blanking on my own sermon. Um, what was last week? <laughs> Invaluable. Invaluable. You know what you just heard? You just got to guarantee that this sermon won't go on the website on uh, this week. <laughs> we're... We're, we're invited. We're invaluable. Today we're talking about um, influential, being, uh, being influential. And, and, and what does that mean? Because, because the reality is we never know. Here's the reoccurring theme. You never know how much one conversation, one kind note, one word of love or encouragement, you never know what kind of an impact that will have on somebody. You never know what that one moment in that seemingly insignificant encounter to you, you never know how that may change or bless or redirect or encourage somebody in their life and, and in their faith and in their walk. So, so the question is for us to begin to think through what it means to, to, have, to have influence, to be a person of influence, and, and how we understand that According to God's word. Now, I'm curious, and maybe you're brave enough. How many of you would describe you, yourself as a person of influence? How many of you would say you're a person of influence? Okay. Everyone is, right. I agree. But, but, but a lot of you. But here's the thing. We, we say that. But when we think about it ourselves, right, we don't. None of you are. Now, some of you are like, I don't want to look like I'm being, you know, bragging. I get that. But, but you, you're, you know, nobody's raising their hand. And I think partly because our society has hijacked that word, right? We, we've hijacked the word to, to, to define. In fact, there's a whole new category of people now in the social media realm, and they're called influencers. And, and influencers largely are tied to social media platforms. They're people on, on Instagram or on YouTube that have large followings, where people will turn in, and so they, they exist in finance, and they exist in the world of fitness, and they exist in the world of other um, health-related aspects or, or mental, mental health. They're influencers, and the idea is that they, are, they have a large scope, 
And, and really, what an influencer is described by, in fact, if you go look up the term, it's an influencer described as somebody who has the, the ability to get other people to purchase a product. So in, influencers largely get tied to um, commercial endeavors, and that's how they make their money. Because, you know, I'm selling a product and I see somebody that has a huge influence, has a lot of people that tune in to watch what they do or listen to what they say. And I try to get my product in their hands so they can get more of their people to buy what I'm selling. But, but it's, it's often, it's platform defined. It's, it's scope defined. It's nothing new. And we've been seeing it since, you know, in my childhood, the mediums changed. It wasn't social media when I was growing up, it was television. And it was often athletes. Michael Jordan was an influencer, right? I mean, if you could get Michael to sell a product, I mean, we knocked ourselves over in my generation to buy his shoes that were ridiculously priced because his name was on it. So it's, it's nothing new. Now, here's my point is I think that has framed our thinking. We think of people as influence, of, of influence, as, as people that have scope, have, have a lot of people that they speak to, a lot of voices or a lot of ears that listen to their voice. But, but the truth is that's, that's a, a diversion of what I think the heart of, of an influencer or somebody of influence is. In fact, you know, for me, and maybe for you, when I, when I started thinking about people of influence, I'm thinking about teachers. I'm thinking about um, Sunday school teachers, coaches for me, people, uh, men and women of influence. And it wasn't because of scope, it was because of impact, because of relationship, right? And so I think we need to reclaim that because the reality is you all have relationships. And so when we begin to not think in scope, but we think of in, in connection, we begin to recognize that we're all people of influence. If you have a connection to another person, if, if you have one person that, that will hear you from time to time or listen to what you have to say, uh, you are a person of influence. It's not about how many of them do that. I mean, any person that stands, you know, I started to do a self-inventory in my own life of who are the, the people of influence in my life. And I would challenge you to do this. Think, think through the names as you journey through your, your life story of, of men and women who have been an influence on you. And, and of course, I start, my story always begins with mom and dad. And, and when I say dad, I don't mean the preacher. I don't mean the guy that spoke to 100 or 1,000 people on a Sunday. I'm talking about the, the guy that spoke to me and, and into my life and, and mom and dad. They, they were my influencers. Last week, if you were here, I talked about the two ladies that taught the two of us at the small church in Jacksonville in our Sunday school class, Terry and Debbie. They were influencers. They absolutely were influencers. Two students is who they had in class in Sunday school on a, on a given morning, but they were influencers. And a, a teacher I had in high school, Deborah Gloomis. Deborah, Miss Gloomis was my favorite teacher. She taught speech and debate, and I got stuck in a speech class against my will as a, as a sophomore in high school. But Miss Gloomis was the first person that saw in me a gift. She was the first person that I remember that said, Chris, you, you can do this, and, and you, have a, you have a gift for this. Now, it was unpolished, it was rough, it was ugly at times, but she saw something. And, and I ended up taking her for debate, and I had her for English. She became one of those teachers that I took any class with her that I could. 
because she was a person of influence. It wasn't that she had hundreds of students. She had me. Now, that might not have been a prize for her, but it was for me. <laughs> and I told you again, if you were here last week, about Chaplain Stanley, who got a, a job for me as a youth minister my second year of college when I wasn't looking to be a youth minister. Well, part of that story is that that spring, before I started that position, uh, I went to a youth training event in Leesburg. And I went to that event scared out of my mind because I had never done this. I was 19 years old. And, and I felt grossly unqualified for it. I felt grossly um, out, out of place doing this. And I went in this time of worship, in this event, I went to the altar in Leesburg. Those of you that maybe have been to the chapel there in Leesburg, and, and I remember it was on what would have been the right side, and I knelt to pray. And, and at that time, he had been a youth leader, but he was a, a young pastor in the conference by the name of George Acevedo. And George came, and he knelt down next to me. And we talked, and I shared with him how scared I was. And he spoke words of encouragement, and he prayed with me. And we had what amounted to probably a five-minute encounter at the altar of a church. And it greatly influenced my life. So much so that I still have just a deep affection for George and see him regularly as a, as a colleague in ministry. And, and it's an encounter that I guarantee he doesn't remember. Not because I wasn't important, but because he had tons of those. But man, it made a difference for me. And Rick Mosier, who was a mentor of mine when I was in seminary, who, who nurtured my, 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 my ministry. And yesterday, it was funny, Tony and I were in Lakeland. We were at um, Florida Southern, Cassie's cheerleading there now. So we went to watch a game and watch her cheer. And we went to dinner that night, or afterward. And we pulled up. We're in downtown Lakeland. We're parked on the street. And we're trying to figure out where exactly we're going to go. And there's some of these um, kind of burger joints and stuff in downtown Lakeland, and they have outside tables. And I'm looking over, and I see this, this woman about our age, and I'm like, Tony, that looks like Paige Zeff. Paige um, is, is a longtime friend of ours. We went to college together. She and Tony were sorority sisters. Um, but the, one of the many, Paige is a wonderful person, but one of the significant things about Paige is um, her given name, her maiden name was Paige Farmer. Her dad... Tom Farmer was the senior pastor where I served as an associate. And so we got out and had a wonderful you know, time to reconnect for a few moments with Paige and, and her girls. And they were visiting Florida Southern and it all comes full circle. But it got me thinking about Tom. And I still have in my drawer, I've told you before, I keep a, a file of encouraging things, encouraging notes. So when life kind of gets you down you can kind of lift up. And I have handwritten notes Tom sent me during my time as his associate, just affirming and encouraging. My point is I could go on and on. I could go, you can do this. You have these voices in your life. And, and you, you begin to recognize that all of these people in every moment of these encounters were influencers, but it wasn't because of scope. It wasn't because, you know, Tom Farmer preached to a couple thousand people, or dad preached to a couple, it was because they were speaking to me. And, and my point is to recognize that we have that influence. You have that influence. You need to claim that. When, when, when the hands go up, when I say, who's a person of influence, what ought to happen is all of our hands should go up, because all of you are. 
All of us are. And it's part of what God calls us to. Our stories matter. It's part of what God redeems. Even the broken part of our stories have impact. And that gets us to this recognition. We turn to to John 4 today. And it's one of my favorite stories because it speaks about influence and the kind of people God uses to be men and women of influence. And it's not often who we would expect it to be. And so, but before we get to the scripture, I have to set this encounter up for those of you that maybe are less familiar. Because it begins early in the chapter. It says that, that Jesus had to go. He was going back to Galilee. He was in Judea. So he's in the, the uh, southern part of, of what we know is Israel. And he's going back to Galilee, which is in the northern part. So he's making that trek from here to here. It says he had, but it says, interesting, he had to go through Samaria. Now, the, in- the, the interesting part about it is that, that phrase, had to go. Because most often when, and I've talked about this before, when, when a good Jewish person made a trip from Judea down here to, to Galilee up here, you know, we would think you make the, direct, the most direct line, right? But they wouldn't. They would do this. They would go around toward the, uh, the Jordan River. And they'd cross and they'd go up and wide. They would stay out of the middle. Well, the middle... It's this place that may sound familiar to you called Samaria. You didn't go through Samaria because there was, there was um, ethnic friction with the Samaritans. The, the Jews did not like the Samaritans because Samaritans were seen, and, and forgive the crude language here, but they, they, were, they were seen as half-breeds because in the history of, of the nation, in the 8th century B.C., the Assyrians occupied the northern part of the kingdom. And when they did, they took some Jewish people into captivity and they moved some Assyrians in. And the people of Samaria, the Jewish people of that time, some of them started to coming to 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 um to 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 cross, marry. You know, and to marry us. I'm, I'm good with words. Um <laughs> They began to marry outside their ethnic race. So, so Jews and, and Assyrians married. And that was an abomination to, to, the, to the, those who saw themselves as, as faithful Jews. And in the 6th century, when the, the southern kingdom was captured by Babylon, the Jews of that southern kingdom held, very, they held fierce to their cultural identity. And so they didn't do that. And so what happened is you had... People that were seen out now outside and, and had corrupted the, the purity of the race, if you will. And those were the Samaritans. And the Jews didn't want anything to do with them. That's why Jesus tells a parable of the good Samaritan. It's a shock value story. This is kind of somebody that, that you've been taught to despise. And yet, he is the hero of the story. When you begin to understand the cultural friction, you begin to understand the significance of, of sometimes Jesus' actions. And so, as a good Jew, you went around Samaria. But Jesus doesn't. He goes through. He goes through. And it says that he came about six hours into the journey. He gets thirsty. He's tired. He needs to break. So he comes to a place called Jacob's Well in the middle of the day. The disciples go off to buy food, which they probably were not thrilled with. They probably didn't want to be there anyway. Now you're just making us go buy stuff. And he sits down, and the woman comes to the well. And that begins this dialogue. And it is a shocking story. Culturally speaking, it is absolutely shocking for two reasons. One, in the middle of the day, Jesus begins a conversation with a woman. 
a rabbi begins talking to a woman. That just was not the cultural norm. It was not. Women were, and we've talked about this, were, were second-class citizens. I didn't know this, but in some rabbinic traditions, I, I read about this this week, women, and I'm sorry to share this with you ladies, but you were believed that you didn't even have a soul. It, it was. It wasn't, I'm not saying it was the dominant tradition, but it was. In fact, in one of the, what they call the lost gospels, it's called a Gnostic gospel. It didn't make it into the Bible for a lot of reasons. Um, it's believed to be um, complete works of fiction. But in one of the Gnostic gospels, after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, make Mary leave. Um, she's not worthy to be here. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'm going to turn her into a man so she can have salvation too. Now, here's my point in sharing this. Do I think that there's nothing truthful about that? It's completely contradictory to the nature and the work of Jesus. I only share that with you to understand that there's this cultural underpinnings. This wasn't completely out of, out of, out of reach for some people to believe. And at the very least, women were lesser than. So when Jesus begins this conversation, part of what shocks this woman at the well is that Jesus even starts talking to her when he asks for something to drink. So you have that first kind of conflict, and the second then is that she is also a Samaritan. And a Samaritan woman that is an outcaster in her own society. You know, she asks, Jesus says, you know, would you, you know, I'd like something to drink. And then in the course of the conversation, instead of asking for something, he starts to offer her something. So it's offering her a living water that if you drink from this, uh, you never will be thirsty again. Uh, he begins to offer her something. He begins to speak to her with compassion. He begins to treat her with dignity. He begins to treat her as somebody worthy of his attention. You've got to understand all this is happening. It had to be completely shocking her because she comes to the well in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to run into anybody because of her story. And she has to begin to think, well, he doesn't really know my story until she finds out that he does. Because if, if, if you're familiar with it, let me give you the kind of the cap. If you're not, go back and read John 4. And when you're done, and when we're done with worship, you go home, go back and read John 4. And, and begin to try to kind of put yourself into a cultural lens of understanding the significance of all of this. So she's got to think, well, Jesus doesn't know anything about me. Until she says, well, I'll go back and, and or, or he says, go, go tell your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He sets her up. And, she sa- and he says, you're right, you don't. You've been married five times, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. So now we understand why she's there in the middle of the day, because most women would come to the, uh, to the, um, to the well early in the day, when it was still cool, not in the middle of the day. She comes in the middle of the day. Why? Nobody's going to be there. Much like we talked about two weeks ago with the woman in, in Luke 7 who anoints Jesus' feet with oil and washes them with her tears, Um, She would have been used to the derision and the comments and the ostracism of her society. But not from Jesus. But not from Jesus. And his encounter with her, his kindness, his compassion, his treating her with dignity and worth changes the trajectory of her life. And if that was the bulk of the story... 
If at the end of, of that encounter, the scripture said to us, and, and she left and was overjoyed and Jesus went on his way, that would be, still be a significant story, except that's not where it ends. This is where I want to pick up the scripture this morning. In John 4, 28, after this encounter, this is what we read in the, in the text there. It says that, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Come see this man. Could this be the Messiah? Now, jump down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. And our prayer always, friends, is that God blesses our reading and our understanding of his word, and specifically our understanding of how significant this is, of how significant this moment is in the life of this woman and what it tells us about influence, because here is the most unlikely woman of influence in the town. She barely has a, is given any respect as a person, let alone ear to what she would have to say. Yet Jesus so impacts her life, she can't help but go and say to others, you've got to come see. You've got to come check this guy out. There's something different. There's something powerful. There's something significant about him. And she becomes the conduit that God uses to bring other people to Jesus. She has influence. It says because of her testimony, many people came to Jesus. She was a woman of influence. You know what it takes to be a person of influence in the kingdom of God? It takes a relationship with Jesus and compassion. You've got to care about the person in front of you. Just care about the person in front of you, whoever that person may be. And you are a person of influence because you have a story to tell. And I know not everybody's on the same journey here. And I know not everybody here. And that's okay if you've not made that commitment to Christ yet. We're glad you're here. But if you've made that commitment, if you've said, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. If you've said, Jesus, I've given my heart to you. Then that call is to use that influence to care about the person in front of you. Because you have influence. And you have influence when you pray with somebody. And you have influence when you tell your story to somebody. And you have influence when you send a note of encouragement to somebody. And you have influence when you pick up the phone and call somebody and say, Hey, haven't seen you. How you're doing? You have influence when you speak words of compassion and love. I mean, every and so many circumstances. And the thing is, we don't always see the fruits of that. Sometimes we just, like Paul says, we just plant seeds. It's not instantaneous. Some of the stories of people that I know that have come to Jesus and had their life transformed by the grace of God comes on the influence of people that for years spoke words of love and encouragement to them and saw no fruit. And just at times felt like they were talking to a brick wall, but they just didn't quit. They just didn't stop. So we read this powerful story about a woman whose life is changed, but who God uses to change others because she had influence. But she's a woman who'd been married five times. She's a woman who wasn't even living 
whose man, the man she was living with wasn't even her husband. She was a woman that had been shunned and treated as an outcast. She's a woman that came to the well in the middle of the day so nobody would talk to her or see her, and she wouldn't have to deal with the snickers and the comments. And that's who God chooses. That's who God chooses. Now tell me again, you don't have influence. Tell, tell me again. Tell me again. Brothers and sisters, how many of you have influence? Yeah, you do. Yeah. Thank God. Thank God. Brothers and sisters, use it. Use it to the glory. Use it to the glory. Tell your story. Be loving, compassionate, sometimes sensitive, whatever it is. Just know Jesus and care about the person in front of you. You're invited. You're invaluable. And brothers and sisters, you are influential. Own it by God's grace and glory. Let us pray. Lord, we, we, we need to claim that truth. Lord, help us to claim that truth. We do have influence. We just... We may just not see it, but we do. And our stories and our words of compassion and love and encouragement, our gestures and and actions, they, they matter. Lord, help us to use our influence to your glory. Help us to use our stories to point to your story. And help us to be faithful to that, even when we don't see the fruits, to know that your Holy Spirit is working. We claim this is the truth of who we are through the power of Christ Jesus working within us. And we give him all glory and praise. In your holy name we pray. Amen and amen. Friends, I invite you as you're able now, we'll stand and sing our